0: Edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, kicking off a big uh, two episode arc here Super Siblings, Awesome Siblings Week on Turned Out of Punk. Kicking it off with Adam Fowler from the band Jawbreaker from Jay Church, etc. A, one of the, one of the nicest people I've met in this whole music thing ever more on that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. And I couldn't think of a better time to thank him for all the hard work he does. Thank you, Tristan Abraham, for everything you do. I love you. My little brother, um, then on siblings week, you know, my, my sibling. Uh, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. You can also support the show by heading over to turnedoutpunk.com and buying a t-shirt or subscribing to this podcast or rating it uh, on the platform that you're listening to it on. Or you can head over to patreoncom punk. and thank you, thank you, thank you to people that do do that. Uh, it is very much appreciated. And, uh, you can, that's the best way to support the show. Uh, I play in a band. We're called fucked up. We will be going on tour. You can find out more tour dates over at fucked up.cc. we got a whole whack of records that have just been reissued or coming out, including year of the horse on tank crimes, epics in minutes on get better records and, uh, uh oh, Matador Records has also been putting out uh David Comes to Life, the reissue of that for the 10th anniversary. There's a new 12 inch called, I believe it's called Letter Rest. Is it? Is it called Letter Rest? Pretty sure it's called Letter Rest. I, I, there's a new 12 inch. It's got a bunch of uh, old 7 inches on it, but that is also out on Matador Records or, or coming out any day now. Anyway, find out more information about all this stuff over at FuckedUp.cc or on these labels' websites or whatnot. We will be going to the UK. And playing some shows, so if you live in uh, the United Kingdom, check your uh, local tour dates, because we might be coming to close to where you live. Maybe, maybe not right to you, but maybe maybe close. Maybe not. And if you, if, you, if we aren't coming to where you live right now in the UK, I do apologize in advance. But uh, come in and see us. We'll be playing more shows this summer. You can find out more information once again on that website, and that is that. Alright, on to today's show. Today on the show... Adam Fowler from the band Jawbreaker. We are kicking off a, uh, a, a a super sibling week, awesome sibling week here because we will also have later on. I'll tell you all about it at the end of the show, but you know, uh, Adam's sibling is going to be on the show. If you if you already know, no spoilers. Don't don't reveal it in advance, but you know. Because it's cool Anyway, we'll get to that a lot later on in the show But today, we're going to be talking about Adam Fowler From the band Jawbreaker Adam is someone who I guess, I, I, way back when He wrote actually about Blake coming on the show And, you know, we at the time We're like, you gotta come on the show And he's like, ah, oh, one day One day we'll make it happen Well, it finally did happen As I said off the top Adam is one of the sweetest people I've gotten to meet Making this music He is truly one of the uh, yeah just just an amazing person and so I'm very happy that I got a chance to sit down and have this conversation with them and that you get to finally hear it and uh, that is that if you want to go and see Jawbreaker they will be playing some shows a lot of these are sold out but these these shows look unbelievable everywhere they're going these bills look pretty spectacular uh, you can find out more information about Jawbreaker's tour over at JawbreakerBand.com There's, as I say, a bunch of dates that have sold out, but there are some tickets left for some of the other places. And my gosh, every single show, it's like a a different bill, like really well curated this whole tour. Really awesome. And of course, Jawbreaker is incredible, too. So, well, that is that. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Adam Fowler on Turned Out a Punk. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey come on I, i'm
1: pleased to be here I'm a, it's an honor
0: well it is an honor to have you here because not only are you a member of jawbreaker and jay church like all the bands you've been a part of but also your uh you kind of like archiving skills or label knowledge all the stuff that you're going to bring to this conversation on my nerdy obsessive uh questions is is going to be invaluable to me so i appreciate in advance, thank you for that. Well, come on.
1: I'm ready, I'm ready to go,
0: man. Well, let's start it off then. The way they all start off, which is Adam, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it?
1: Uh definitely. Uh my my older sister, I have a cool older sister who uh was born five years before me. And so she she got into punk kind of right around that. You know, Alley Cat's X. Um, that's kind of like that first wave of like LA hard, you know, LA punk that, that, that I guess later we called it hardcore or something. Um so my sister had the records and she, you know, she was the first one to get her hair cut and dyed. And she just, you know, she was what? She was like a junior probably in high school in like 1977. 78 we're living in Santa Monica and she had a moped so she was just off and running just going to, to going to shows and buying cool records and um eventually she took off a couple of years later to New York but um I would say my sister definitely was was the first influence besides you know besides my friends um around the same time that my sister was like here listen to this." I was uh I was probably in seventh grade or something. Um and meeting people at my at my middle school who who were like getting bussed in and who were who who had older brothers that were or brothers or sisters that were in the punk rock. So like I remember talking about punk rock with this kid, George Murillo, who I was in the class with. Um and he had yeah, he had a cool brother. Who just knew shit you know just knew who was playing and when and he knew about black flag and he knew about you know all of that really cool first wave of la stuff so i was always kind of fascinated by it um just between seeing my sister get really into it um and it taking her into a totally different artistic direction to like just you know dudes at school talking about it and then you know, then you make the leap and you buy the you buy a seven inch or whatever and and hear it, really hear it. <laughs> um, sometimes that takes a minute. You know, yeah. If you're used to, it. I, I remember hearing. I remember the first time I heard "Damaged." Like I was like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> like I couldn't even hear what was happening. Yeah, I was like, "What? What is this?" And it was only later that it sunk in. Like a couple of songs on that record, like whatever, six pack or you know, like they 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 have an immediate hook and you're like, okay, I I could see where this is going. But some of it was just like, oh my God, like this is insane. (laughs) Um but yeah, and then I, you know, you get a little bit older and then you can find your way to shows. And I started taking the bus to go to see shows and and yeah, I was kind of off to the off to the races, I guess.
0: Did it freak you out at all seeing like your sister get into it? Because I've had other people on the show who talk about, especially when punk was first, first happening, older siblings getting into it and being kind of scary because it was, you know, it was pitched in the media as being so evil. My, yeah, but
1: she was like, when she was going to shows, it wasn't hardcore yet. It was still Mm -hmm. pretty cool. It was very, uh, it was very diverse and it seemed very artistic and kind of older. Like it wasn't, um, and I just thought that all those people, like all of her and her friends just had cool style, I thought, you know? Um, it was only later that it got kind of gnarly. When it got scary was when it was like when everyone sort of adopted the, the look and like, okay, I guess you have to shave your head and wear a flannel and just go beat the shit out of somebody in a, in a pit. Like when it was hard, when it became hardcore a couple of years later when I got into it in earnest, Then yeah, then it was scary, but I I wasn't afraid seeing my my sister um, get into it because she was so joyful about it. You know, she was just so stoked to be in this new thing, and it really took her. She just kind of it just like was a pivotal. I I I can't speak for, but it seemed like a pivotal moment in her life where she was like, "I'm going to go this way, and I'm going to be, I'm going to make art, I'm going to do stuff." Like it just seemed like she made a decision that she was going to allow this to to take her somewhere else that was like would be fulfilling to her you know cuz mm-hmm. you know like a lot of people she wasn't stoked in in high school and you know like she couldn't wait to get out and we were living in LA like but she couldn't wait to get out of LA she just wanted to go do the next thing to to, to grow up and to go to the big city and do shit you know yeah. and and i think the, that punk rock was like her that that was her gateway to that whole world opening up for her so it didn't look it, did, it didn't spook me at all when she yeah. came you know you know she would come back from new york with, with like we would take bets on what color her hair would be and like do you think she'll you know what what's her style gonna be um but yeah i i was just, i was happy for her and I, and I went out and visited her i think in eighth grade i went and visited her in a new york city and um you know she I, she took me to like the pyramid club and she like cut my hair off and I met her friends in New York and it was like oh shit this is like a whole this is a whole new thing
0: she must have been hanging out with some awesomely gnarly people in New York at that time because like was she already involved in the cinema transgression stuff by that point like it would have been happening around that or maybe no wave was still going on more than that
1: she yeah uh, she moved to she moved to New York in 1979 as a seventeen as a seventeen year old so she got into uh, you know she was at SVA studying art and then she did that for a few years and then dropped out and just started making films and doing her own stuff and um, she was one of those early ABC No Rio people um, like she's in the No Rio book that I have It's amazing her and Samoa and like guys like Edgar Oliver and all these like new york characters um and then and then came like the cinema of, of transgression and like working with like richard kern and um nick zed and all all those guys and lydia like all those people I've, i think that she's known those guys for a long time
0: did you get to go on any shows
1: when you were out visiting her in new york no I, I it was funny i i just um my uncle eduardo called me up one day and he goes he goes he goes, hey Adam, you want to go to New York tonight? And I go, yeah, sure, I want to go to New York. Just thinking he's like putting me on, and so I put him on with my mom, and they talked, and like 20 minutes later, he came by and picked me up, and we just flew to New York. And I was, I was like a kid. I was like, yeah, in eighth grade, by 13 years old or something. Um, and uh, when I got there. they just kind of dropped me off at my sister so i was you know i was at my sister's down on uh third and i think she was on third street and avenue d at the time
0: that must have been gnarly it was super gnarly
1: yeah it was it was intense it was like a different it was a different new york for sure it was like there was like buildings that were just like completely being squatted or, or or bombed out and there was like you know guys like lowering a pail for the drug trade and like it was I've
0: heard of that. I've definitely heard stories of that in New York that that was the thing, the pails coming down with the drugs.
1: Yeah, that that stuff was was um that was pretty scary <laughs> as a kid, but 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 not really because to me it was um it was cinematic. It was yeah. like it was like I thought it was like romantic that it, that I was in somewhere that devastated like i didn't i just looked at it like from an outsider i was like oh this is real what real life is this is just Mm -hmm. like what it's like in a movie in a scorsese movie or something you know what i mean yeah um so i wasn't as i wasn't as freaked out as i probably should have been you know what i mean because i'm sure that i'm sure just walking around that neighborhood in 1970 or 1980 or whenever it was i went i think i went there in 1980 um yeah you were you were probably you know, taking your life in your own hands, if, if that makes sense. But, um, so yeah, my sister sort of like, you know, showed me like punk rock in, in Los Angeles and then she took off and then I went and visited her. And then that sort of was another kind of big sort of revelation to me, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, wow. New York is like, kind of like every, I, I I was like, I have to move to New York at some point, that's just something you have to do
0: did you guys ever play shows together the two bands because like you know they put out the seven inch on vital music in 89 so it's kind of like seems like adjacent ish scenes a little bit like obviously very different styles and and everything yeah we we did play uh we played CBGB together
1: CB's um with uh it was Karen Black jawbreaker and all
0: what a show oh my god can you believe that wow what was that like yeah the vibe must have been insane at that thing.
1: I think it was our first time playing at CB's. When we would go to New York, when Jawbreaker would go to New York, we would always play a CB's show, and then we would play an, a No Rio show. Um, we just stay. At, I'd stay at my sister's. Um, but yeah, it was incredible. That was incredible. Like I think that she started Karen Black after I after we were doing the band. But but when uh, I'm going to jump around the timeline. And just keep it on New York when when Blake and I went to to college later to New York, the very first show that I ever played that me and Blake and Chris ever played together was we did a we did like a performance art piece that my sister and Samoa and uh, Edgar Oliver uh, put together at La Mama Annex in the Lower East Side, and it was called Under the Bad Star. So it was like a rock opera. Um. And Nazomi was the singer. These are all performance people from from that scene, and um, and we were like the backing band. So that was our first like show ever. Was in nineteen eighty six at La Mama Annex, uh, playing as like the band for the rock opera for this wild performance piece that Samoa came up with.
0: <laughs> That's
1: um, awesome. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was pretty
0: wild. So were there like so this is pre-rise even right
1: uh yeah yeah it was it was right when it was right when uh blake and i went to to school and at new york university
0: so i've heard you mention other interviews sonic youth being an influence like was that the idea for the band originally was it like to be more kind of like you know overtly arty or more like part of that kind of like you know post i guess descendants of no wave and art punk scene type thing
1: i think it was just what we were listening to at the time when we went to new york like evil it it just come out Mm -hmm. and um we just listened to the shit out of that record and um we met chris there and chris was into more like uh he was into like hardcore stuff like he was into like that Midwest like Mm and um articles of faith he was into the dc stuff that we hadn't like you know we knew minor threat and stuff but we you know he was very immersed in that kind of stuff at the time and blake and i were coming from los angeles in that sort of post sst renaissance so the stuff that we came up with was like black flag and the Minutemen and the meat puppets and sonic youth and um you know, the bad brain. Well, everyone, everyone's listening to the bad brains, but, um, but yeah, the idea and maybe something about not having a singer when we first started and it be, you know, us having to make noise to, to, to fill the space as just three people. I'm sure, I'm sure like the the harmonics on the guitar that kind of, that we learned from Sonic Youth and just like they're kind of, jammy like not jammy because that's that's implies something else but just like um just like those just instrumental passages and stuff like we really like that maybe because we weren't we hadn't really fine-tuned our singing and songwriting yet you know
0: yeah well I saw you actually talk about an interview where it's like you know the 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 jammy parts of sonic youth that sort of thing is like almost like a a virtuosity I think you, you even talked about how it's like almost like a way of burry being virtuosic in your playing without having to be you know eddie van halen or something like you can actually kind of like draw out these musical passages a little bit
1: yeah for sure that was definitely the. that's definitely part of our what became our sound i think Mm -hmm. because you know we don't have like parts of our song where it's like take a solo blake you know that (laughs) doesn't really happen and if it does it's usually in jest you know yeah um so yeah, that 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 became our sound. We arrived at that later, but I'm not sure how. You know, I mean, I, I I've said this before. I, maybe like maybe our grasp exceeded our reach, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that's like that's the kind of thing about Sonic Youth is that it is like, you know, it's deceptively simple in the beginning when you first hear it but then you realize how how difficult those passages are to construct but there's something about it that just like beckons you to 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 try it
1: yeah i mean chris used to call our band like he he always wanted to make what he called pretty noise you know Mm. he wanted it to just to be kind of beautiful but you know chaotic and uh just a and and and, yeah cacophony
0: as well (laughs) So it was like Hoosker Doo like a bridge band between you guys and Chris because like it where like where does the melody come from? Um
1: I have really old recordings of our me and me and Blake were in a band in high school called called Red Harvest with our friend Rich um Desaire. And it was another three piece, but like we, you know, we made a couple of songs back then that, that it was clear to me that, that they were pretty mo- melodic mm-hmm. and and the Blake could probably end up being the, the singer. Um, but for sure, Husker Du, like New Day Rising. And um, I mean, Blake used to take that record to school with him and like put it in his locker. <laughs> 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 I think that was the one. That one, or maybe Mommy's Little Monster. It might have been the social distortion. But I, I remember there was, a, there was a scene that was cut from the documentary about the group where blake was talking about like actually bringing the lp to school just to have it just to have it there you never know you
0: know yeah. well bill stevenson told me that he used to carry around a copy of the germs lyric sheet just to read if he ever needed something to read wow that's genius yeah, yeah. that's awesome <laughs> um did red harvest play out
1: much? no we we played like you know we played like parties and stuff you know oh. like we we played Debbie Schaefer's party in 11th grade Um, and we just made, you know, just made a racket and it was rad. Um, (laughs) But we did that and we played, um, Yeah, we played a couple of times out. We played with once with uh, Magnolia Thunder Pussy, another backyard party that got, got broken up by a huge fight. And um, yeah, so we played, we played out, but not like clubs and stuff. It was just like our friends would invite us to, to ruin their their backyard or whatever
0: so i guess jumping back in time now like what was your first yeah yeah i'm sorry no no please no this is the way this is is the way i love the show when it flows like this um but going back in time like what what was the first concert you went to like even pre-punk stuff devo that's awesome that's punk
1: um well i mean i i thought i mean it was just no it was something else entirely it was devo yeah um i uh i went uh, i think I, it was maybe ninth grade or something i went and saw devo at um on the uh, new traditionalists tour with my friend rich and um you know it's hard la's big so i you know the first shows that i went to I, you know we had to get a ride and stuff we had to take the bus you know we had to take the bus to go see the clash at the hollywood palladium um you had to Find somebody who had, like, you know, or we, if my sister was in town, she'd give us a ride somewhere. But, like, you know, a lot of the shows that we would see that we were able to see were the all ages ones, like at the Cathay de Grand in Hollywood. So we could take the bus there. Um, or when, like, they started shutting all the clubs down, we would have to go to like a weird roller rink in F- Reseda or some fucking weird like vfw hall or gymnasium just you know or we'd have to go to the olympic auditorium so like that so my first like okay so my first concert was DO my first hardcore show was um um uh doa uh black flag the descendants and and the Minutemen at the ukrainian hall in in hollywood i think that was on the it was when black flag was a five piece And like Henry was still wearing pants and Dez was playing second guitar. Um, And I think, I think, I think Bill Stevenson was in that band, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. That's that line. That's, that's an incredible lineup of that band from all accounts.
1: Yeah, that was an insane show. And that was like a frightening, I mean, that was like full, I remember just thinking these are full grown men with jobs that are just in there beating the absolute dog shit out of each other. Yeah. like i was like what the fuck is happening but it was so exciting at the same time that that was that was the pull it was like wow i got through that you know it's like oh you know and in los angeles like like there'd be there'd be riots all the time like you know we were at the the black flag ramones minutemen riot at the palladium we were we were at the exploited riot with the youth brigade in huntington park like we had to wait like we just spent like half of those shows running from police fucking insane <laughs> Well, like- and that's what's really scary the scariest part was running from the police it wasn't like the show itself it was like am I going to get be thrown in jail or beaten up or something
0: well that's the thing that keeps coming up on the show is that that LA a lot of these riots were actually instigated by the police especially in the early years where it was just oh like- for sure oh 100 percent. yeah 100 yeah. percent. it was almost like uh training exercise a little bit because like you know at the end of the day you're just beating up a bunch of punks yeah
1: it's funny because my my uncle uh on my dad's side is an lapd guy and uh he was at that exploited riot that i that i was at
0: oh. <laughs> so uh, i guess uh you know going back to that uh class show who opened that on that uh class show do you remember uh interesting think, openers uh
1: english beat
0: oh that's awesome
1: it was, it, you know, it was pretty well into their, uh, that was like probably like 1982 or something mm-hmm. on like Combat Rock. And I'm not even sure, and yeah, Topper wasn't even with them. I think they'd already got, gotten um, rid of Topper at that point. Um, but yeah, that was an, that was an incredible show. Definitely an incredible show that... You know, I, I've I've said this before, but like Joe Strummer, like literally through through the the radio, told me like you gotta go start your own band, and you know that's it's it's it was the mantra that you know that was D Boone's mantra. It was like go start your own band, you know. Mm-hmm. Like so, these are the guys that we were that I was really looking up to, and I just took it like as like a call to action or something, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it it it's just uh, you know it's like one of the few places that you're told to do that. You know, like yeah. everything <laughs> else.
1: Uh oh, like, it's okay. It's
0: okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Where were we? We had to take a little uh, I know, detour. Where, where were we? I'm now I'm trying to. Uh, we were talking about uh, uh, early shows, uh, The Clash. 82. Oh, right,
1: right. Right. The Clash at the Palladium. I saw. I actually saw them before that, too, maybe. I, I think I saw them open up for The Who on oh, that. that's awesome. That sort of like passing the torch um, tour. uh, That was amazing, but it was at the Coliseum, you know? So you had, but the nice thing about that was like, you know, the who crowd was very, they were pretty mellow. So like, it was really easy for me to just get right up to the front and see the clash. So I was like, right up against the barrier. Um, That was, that was pretty amazing. And I saw him later in Long Beach. I saw him at the civic and, you know, my sister took me to some shows when she'd be back, from from uh school my sister took me to see public image in pasadena like really pretty early on so
0: that's uh, that first tour i think they do where they come and they played uh like american bandstand and they like they did a bunch of weird it might have been the second second one because i because i remember seeing flyers
1: for that first tour and i think they played the civic auditorium in santa monica okay um i remember that flyer was everywhere but um (laughs) It might have been the next time through, so you know I was a little bit I was you know I was a little bit behind my sister, but she would you know.
0: What's well, amazing because uh, oh sorry I me cut you off.
1: No, no, I, I I'm just making shit up as I go.
0: <laughs> well, it's amazing because like I think the two of you, like you were saying earlier, are on the are on the divide, either sides of the divide that is L.A. hardcore that people people keep bringing up here, yeah. Which which is where the shift happens, like you're saying, where the scene you know the demographics of the scene really changes and a lot of people leave like a lot of people just are like driven out by the oncoming hardcore and the violence that kind of comes along with it and Mm -hmm. and i guess ultimately that becomes worse as time goes on yeah for sure um i was you know
1: let me think about
0: that like i i know i i feel feel
1: like i got i might have got a little bit of the to go to some of that stuff at the very end you know, like, you know, like I, you know, we'd go see like the plugs at the music machine on Pico, you know, like I was always a West side kid. Like I'm I'm from Hermosa beach, actually. I lived in Hermosa beach for whatever, seven, six or seven years. And then I moved away and then we moved and I just kind of jumped around all over the West side. Like I lived in Santa Monica. I lived in Brentwood. I, I lived, my formative years were in the Pacific Palisades. So I met a whole new group of people, in the Palisades that were making music and stuff that were like kind of tied to the SST scene, like the Hayden kids and Eddie Greger at, at PJD. And like that whole, that whole scene was like a whole nother thing. but um, but yeah, early on, I, I feel like I got to do some, see some of that pretty cool stuff. And then, and then, yeah, there was definitely a shift by the time I was driving myself to shows, like it was on, it was like hardcore was hardcore. And it was like, the cops were going to be there and maybe there'd be some weird gang shit or, or not, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny because like, um, there's like that other scene that kind of emerges too, which I guess would be almost like the parallel scene to stuff that's going on in New York, like the no wave stuff with like Savage Republic and all those sorts of bands, like kind of like the more artier type, which I guess plugs are kind of like adjacent to in a weird way.
1: Well, I just thought the plugs were cool because they, um, I had that, I had both of their, I had their first and second record and I just, I just played them to death. Like, and I thought it was cool that they sang in Spanish too. And it was just like, I don't know. There was something kind of rootsy about it as well. Um, but yeah, I thought, that, you know, I, I just, I I'm not sure even how that, I think maybe, maybe Rich turned me on mm-hmm. to them, the Red Harvest uh, bass player. But yeah, there was just so much going on. So like me and Blake, like, and my friends uh, just being in proxy, just being in Los Angeles, you know, coming of age in like 1980. And like, so the next four years or five years, it's like you got to see so many great bands come through that were either touring or that we're just playing every single weekend. Like I can't, you know, we'd see the Minutemen all the time. We'd see, social distortion and channel three it was like it was like you could you know shoot a gun in the air and a bullet would land on a show that you were going to go to that weekend so we were really lucky um and you know it's certainly once we had a a driver license and had access to a borrow a car and get you know get a ride somewhere it was totally on you know when i got my 74 buick apollo it was fucking on i would you know we would drive to like crazy we go we go miles and miles to see to see shows we go way
0: far away what were the differences between some of the scenes you'd be going to at that time like did you find there were like marked differences when you go to a show in like kind of like a place further out um
1: i don't remember ever kind of clocking the differences uh I, i think you know we're just you're just happy to be somewhere where there's like they're just doing something that you think is cool and there's like-minded people there. And
0: you know, it was rad. I was just San Diego's always brought up as being somewhere that was like even more potentially dangerous than LA for shows. And then I've heard like there's other places that are like a little more sedate at that time too.
1: Yeah, I remember we took a trip. I yeah, I we, I piled a bunch of people in my car and we drove to San Diego to see um. To see Black Flag, Saint Vitus, and DC Three, what a show! And it was um, and it was um, right when um, that first Vitus record came out, the black one, um, and I remember it being it was sketchy, but it was again, it was it was police, like they, I I got busted, we got busted in the car in the alley behind the, the venue, um, and. They found, <laughs> they found syringes because I have type one diabetes and they, they thought that my syringes that were like in my car were for shooting up. So they, they blocked us in with their car and they were going to take us downtown. Um, and I was swearing up and down. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a junkie. Look at me like, um, and black flag was loading in and the police got a call that there was a there was violence happening that the kids around the corner were fighting so they they left their car blocked us in in this alley and they were like you stay right here and they took off and i remember seeing uh chuck dukowski and henry and we looked at them and we go what should we do like what and and uh and henry goes do they have your ids And we go, no. And he goes, he just kind of shrugged like, well, I don't know. So we just fucking, we just like jump back in the car and just fucking like smashed through some trash cans to get around the cops and went parked like a mile away and then walked back to the fucking show. (laughs) And then, and then, and then Black Flag dedicated police story to us.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess like when you moved to New York, what kind of other shows were you going to at that point?
1: Uh, New York. I mean, we got I got there in like 80, 1986 So like the, the bad brains were enjoying their like kind of like reemergence with Eye Against Eye. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like post HR solo stuff. And um so they were they were I saw them. Um it was a little bit more post. I remember like the butthole surfers came through and I remember seeing, uh, who did we see? Like Firehose, um, Sonic Youth, like those kind of bands. But, you know, then there was always the CB's matinees for if you wanted to go see like some sort of crazy blistering hardcore show or there was a the stuff in No Rio that, that was rad. There was just so much there for us too. So like, yeah, we kind of went from L.A., left leaving LA in 1985 when everything was just like kind of shut down. It was like, okay, it's going to be hair metal now it's going to be the sunset strip. There were no more places for us to go see shows. Like Dee Boone died and all the bands broke up and it was like that I just remember that being sort of like, oh shit, this is this feels like the end of something here. Um and then we went off to New York and then we learned about, you know, or got got a little bit more immersed in sort of like the DC stuff that was just starting getting fired back up, you know, or stuff. Uh, yeah. Just the East coast shit, you know, and Midwest stuff that we didn't might not have um, had, uh, you know, like in our radar, it really does so feel that, yeah, like, so it... like, like, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, go on. Sorry.
1: I was going to say like, cause I remember right when we got to New York, it was like, uh government issue you had just come out and i remember listening to that a lot and going like oh this is something here and then and getting into naked ray gun when we were when we were back there and so there there's all these bands that like you could probably hear you could you could probably hear it in our music mm-hmm. where we were where we were picking from you know and and falling short and then coming up with our own
0: sound you know well that's what i love about jawbreaker is the fact that like it's kind of impossible to place like i was thinking today like what like as i was looking at communion and tupelo records and i'm like oh what a weird fit for you know yeah the band but then i'm like what would be a better fit like you're a band that doesn't sound like you fit into any scene like it's something that's so unique like it's not pop punk it's not you know alternative college rock it's not hardcore but it's something right. completely different yeah i agree and it's it's been it's weird
1: that we we're we don't really have like i feel like we're kind of on our own we don't really have a scene like when you think of like the epitaph or the fat records bands Mm -hmm. you definitely think of a certain sound and a certain aesthetic maybe even um and i didn't think we fit into that necessarily and and then there was like
0: you know like look out which you don't really fit. We, into yeah we either. weren't we
1: weren't really we didn't really fit into that lookout thing either
0: yeah. um so
1: i always, we always kind of just felt like these sort of free agents that were that didn't fit anywhere really we didn't really have like a heart like like a community maybe like some of those other bands have like we always just thought we were weirdo you know just like who's going to give a shit about this you know um and we I think we still probably feel that way like that we don't really fit in this this stuff like if you look at festivals that people put together like what festival maybe besides riot fest do we really fit in not none of them really
0: yeah no I, but i think those are the most interesting bands right because that's like those are the bands that you know that years later you're like oh wow how how could like it not have fit in with everything you know like it's right. one of those things that like you know those are the bands that change stuff when they come out yeah
1: like, no I'm not complaining when I say that I'm yeah. kind of I'm bra- I'm kind of bragging on it yeah. but I like that I like that we don't fit anywhere and I like that we were necessarily kind of alienated from a lot of different places because it's like fuck it we're just gonna do our put our heads down and go anyway
0: you know I'm definitely fascinated by that cafe de grand kind of like little scene of bands like sort of like an intermediary scene that seems to spring up where you have I guess early no effects would have been part of it, you know, and, and like a lot of the mystic kind of bands and mystic, rec- yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Justice league and, and bands like a little bit like that too, later on that, like, you know, I guess, yeah. That stuff, that
1: stuff didn't go by without, I mean, you know, like we had JFA records and we had, you know, there was stuff on mystic that we, that we tuned into and, but at the same time there, you know, red cross is playing at cafe because yeah, they were, they were just kids too. So we saw them there um, a bunch. Um, that was a cool little scene. That was a cool thing because it was right in the heart of Hollywood. And yet it was, you know, you could be 15 years old and go there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, was that, was that, it seems like that place, you know, obviously there was, you know, it's it's not immune to violence or something like that, but it seems like from what I've heard, that was more of a, it was more of the big shows that you had to worry about shit going crazy at.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The Olympic auditorium shows were kind of sketchy like that. Like, um, yeah, like the big kind of like punk-a-thon shows for for sure, where where you were getting where probably and it would be started by some fucking jock, right? Like, that's that's another thing. Mm. Um, I remember some some jocks were like were beating up on a friend of ours at that at that plate that Black Flag Ramones Minutemen show at the Palladium. Okay, that's how that started. It wasn't because pit got too hairy it was just because some assholes were like let's go to the big punk show and like beat up on weirdos or something
0: you know yeah yeah it seems like certain bands would even bring it out like a lot of people have come on the show and said like a dead candy show or a circle jerk show or there are certain shows that you know like you get a lot of tourists that would come out because these bands had like a national station
1: yeah 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 like any of the bands certainly from like you know i remember seeing fear one night uh, it was uh, It might have been on new year's eve it was when flea was p- playing with fear mm. um and i just remember it being gnarly because people probably had, you know they'd been like they'd seen decline or whatever and they were like okay it's fear so let's and this is the band that got thrown off a of saturday night live let's go let's go fuck
0: shit up you know <laughs> what was it like kind of going back to LA later on, like how would things change? Like it was still kind of like a, I guess, pre everything coming back in Los Angeles in terms of all ages shows, right? For sure. Yeah. I
1: mean, there was, there were shows, but it was paid to play. Um, there was stuff going on. There was like that, whatever wave number that would be of like um, the cruise bands that were playing or big drill car and like, chemical people i remember that there was a push and then and then the offspring started playing um so when we went back to la after college um and while i was finishing i didn't stay in new york i went back to to finish at ucla but um yeah kind of a little bubbling scene was starting to happen like you could you could go see a show at like Owl's bar or the anti-club places like that. Um, so it was kind co- of, you know, but really it was being, it was dominated by the sunset strip and guns and roses and all the knockoffs from that scene. That was where the real happening, you know, music people were having the most fun was, was up there at the, at the rainbow and the Roxy and whiskey or whatever, you know? So we, never we didn't fit into that. Like we were, ne- we would never have gotten the show at the, at the Roxy or the, the whiskey at first. So we were just, you know, we would just take the scraps where we could get them. We, you know, we would play at the gaslight bar in Hollywood or we play at Club 88 on on Pico on the West Side. That was our first show ever, I think, as Jawbreaker yeah. Uh, our first show ever was definitely as, as um at Club 88, which is featured in um in Decline. Wayne, Wayne is all over that um that movie talking about the germs and the go-go's and stuff but yeah it was um it had changed uh but it, but it was like still there was like something happening it was like starting to maybe bubble back up and I remember i remember right around that time when we came back like bad religion maybe had just put out suffer does that does that time out right I like around so. 80, 88 maybe yeah, yeah. They're the so, man that's
0: always oh sorry go ahead.
1: no i i it just seemed like I mean, Blake was quoted as saying that he wanted to start the band and really do it in earnest when there was nothing going on, when there wasn't shit for us to do. And it's true because it definitely felt like uh, doable. It's like, well, there's fucking nothing, nothing going on here. Why don't we make something happen? You know? We had nothing to lose. So it's like, well, there's nothing, not, not, nothing going on. So let's let's see what we could, what we could do, how we could fill the space up.
0: It's always kind of brought up that Bad Religion were one of the bands that kind of kept it going, like one of the few bands that kept going in L.A. But like, it really does feel like a hard stop. Toronto's is kind of the same way. At a certain point, where there's like, you know, it's like the there's still punk bands and hardcore bands going, but it's like everyone's attention because it's such a music industry town here. Shifts to something else, and then it's like right. you can't get shows at clubs anymore. There's you got to play certain places, not others. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, it was a weird time. That, that just like
1: I, I'm saying, like that time between. I really, I do. I kind of mark it at like '85 when, like, when Black Flag breaks up and Dee Boone passes away, and um, and then I left there. It's, it was like definitely seemed like uh, something just like a line was drawn in, in the sand or something and whatever it all, it's all, it's all cyclical. It all came back anyway. So like when we, when we returned and then, okay, there's bad religion playing again and they're kicking ass. And so, Oh shit. The big, big boys are playing this weekend or whatever. And then Fugazi comes by and then, and then it's a whole new, a whole new thing.
0: And I guess eventually the the Jabberjaw opens up, right? And and uh... yeah, the Jabberjaw was definitely
1: our our home away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, we, that opened up right when we moved when we made the move. Once everyone was done with school, we all moved to San Francisco yeah. because we all we had a good reception in San Francisco, and there was stuff going on, and we knew people there that paid cheap rent. And they were like, yeah, come to San Francisco. So we all agreed, okay, let's do that. Um, And Jabberjaw opens up in LA when we're up in San Francisco. So we would just make that drive constantly. We would just drive, jump on I-5 and play down in LA whenever we could. We'd do like the Pitzer, the Pitzer Colleges shows and then play at Jabberjaw. And that was like, you know, we damn near made a living doing that.
0: Hmm. it's it's funny too because like at that time you know like it it was kind of the center of of alternative music media san francisco in the way that like you had max rock and roll there you had all the distribution companies a lot of the distribution companies based out of there like it really was kind of yeah especially going forward
1: Mm -hmm. yeah mortem and revolver and there was
0: epicenter Um, was there too yeah there was a lot there was a lot
1: going on um and it made sense because we had come up and we had played Gilman Street. Um, shit, I think our first Gilman Street was like with verbal assault and underdog or something. Like what we got, a show. we were, yeah, we really lucked out with some shows. We just kind of got on the bill and somehow, and and then we started playing to cover Wagon Saloon in San Francisco. So we'd have like the bar show for the older crowd and those people that were like, you know, the, the steel pole bathtub people and and those those kind of bands. And then we go over to, yeah, we could play at, at Gilman with, like, Sam I Am and, um, you know, the, and those guys.
0: Well, that's the amazing thing is because you guys have your feet in, like, both worlds at that time. Like, both underground currents, like, the sort of more mature, I don't know, artier, post-hardcore, punky kind of world. And then this also, like, all-ages thing. And both are kind of, like, the two, like, streams that are happening at the same time. Parallel yeah, worlds. Yeah, for sure yeah and it was great because um
1: i thought we kind of went over in both of those places i I always thought it was cool like you know my sister and her friends would come and see us in new york and shit and like I, i i was always i remember always being stoked about our crowds because they were very they were diverse and like there'd be like bikers and there'd be you know kids and there'd be college kids with their backpacks on still and you know just like it was very kind of all over the place a lot of women came to see us which was nice because you know i remember as a kid going to those hardcore shows in la and it was just a bunch of bald you know kids trying to you know boys trying to beat up each other so i remember by the time we started playing shows on at a regular clip that i remember thinking yeah this is this is rad there's all sorts of different kind of people here
0: you know what scene would you fit into in chicago because there it seems like the divide is is pretty big between sort of that touch and go you know kind of world and then sort of like the more kind of like all ages kind of world there i don't know i mean
1: where did we fit in i you know we played those um Like homewood illinois shows or whatever we Mm -hmm. played off the alley and um you know our 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 connection to to chicago was mainly through you know we had met ben weasel when screeching weasel came through san francisco yeah um and then when we went to go record our third record we met you know we did that with steve albini at his house so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, again, I don't, I don't really know where we fit in. It was like, we fit in wherever they would have us, you know, wherever they were like, yeah, we'll give you a show. <laughs> I,
0: I couldn't, I couldn't say who was, who was really listening to us
1: in Chicago.
0: You know, it's so weird to think of the like, Steve Albini and Ben Weasel existing in the same city at the same time. Cause it does feel like <laughs> two completely different like planets that would have very different gravity
1: Yeah. Different energies, different energies, but you know, that's a big city, you know, that was, uh, that was also where, you know, Jesus lizard was. (laughs) And I think that we would like to think that we, that we, that we could have held our own with them, but I'm not sure we could (laughs) have.
0: I think mean, there's some nights that Jesus lizard can't hold their own with themselves. Like there's some right. nights probably on those tours where they're like, yeah, this might get a out of hand. We were, I mean, we were pretty huge fans of those guys.
1: So like, yeah, they were like, they were heroes to us. So when we pulled up the van and piled out and saw them like leaving Albini's basement after <laughs> practice, just like drenched in sweat after like probably a four hour, you know, session we were like oh my god we didn't even look at them we were like scared to look at them, you know yeah we were like, oh shit, there they are oh my god <laughs> i don't know i mean you seem to know a lot about a lot of different weird things like you knew about my sister scene and that that's not that's kind of deep track stuff i i, I guess it's more i guess it's getting it's gotten more popular did you watch the, the lydia lunch documentary and stuff did you see I, that one
0: i haven't seen it um she was on the show like around the time it was coming out and it was okay it was awesome like i'm a i worked in a video store so i was like then we like carried like all the cinema of transgression stuff and we carried like just tons of interesting underground things so oh okay yes yeah, so okay so you know yeah that was like kind of like a i, I love like especially getting into punk like seeing that as you know it's not the same thing but it's like an outgrowth of a lot of people that were involved in this and came out of this and just took that energy and were like, like well, once we did this to film and just yeah. like the impact that had on on movies is just incredible like it's just it is like truly like them punking cinema
1: totally totally yeah i agree i agree yeah i had a yeah i had a, i um i had a video store for 20 years as well up here in san francisco
0: i know we talked about this briefly and that's uh it it is i love films video store culture is like i wish if there's anything that could come back you know in the streaming era i wish it was video culture video store culture because it was just so fun going there and hanging out well you know you own the store yeah no i i wrote i wrote i wrote a tv show about it (laughs) (laughs) it 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 was an it's something that like i don't know in our our video store like well i worked at a couple different video stores and every time it was it was like a video store that was like a anti-chain store so everyone that's coming in there is interesting so you're like meeting cool customers every day
1: yeah it took yeah it was um when I, when I look because, because we, we sold, we sold the collection to the Alamo draft house um, right around the time the band got back together and started, you know, playing a lot. So I couldn't have that job anymore. So, but I owned this video store last weekend in here in San Francisco and it was very much in the spirit of, um, you know, it was like, It was a total diy thing right and and we we all loved movies the three of us that started i started with uh, dave the drummer of engine 88 um and christy who used to do mullet head tours in the uk she did our first um european tour she she was the booker and driver and stuff for like green day and you know all those early lookout bands um, so the three of us started the video store and really, when I think about it, those 20 years, I think about the community that was built there and, um, yeah. And it's like my, the, yeah, that's, it gives me the most kind of satisfaction thinking about how we were just a place, a place for people to go and just talk shit, talk about the things that they loved and that they're obsessed with. It was, it was great. It was great for that. Um, yeah, and you might get to watch, you know, the kids grow up and um it was incredible. It was like an incredible thing. And and we were a cool, we were a really cool s- store. It was, you know, we we kind of considered ourselves more like a library, really. Mm-hmm. Um so in, in like every, it was very finely curated, you know, like we had like a, a director's wall and we had every criterion thing that came out. And you know, when we started the thing, it was all VHS and then we replaced it with dvd and then when fucking blu-ray came along we did that too and we had we had events there we we screened films like danny plotnik would come in and show show 16 millimeter stuff or you know we had like uh bill lee the baseball player came in and, sh- and did a, a commentary while we watched this documentary
0: <laughs> that's awesome
1: yeah and then i opened up um and then we opened up a well i You know, like a bar, like a speakeasy in the basement, and then we started putting on comedy shows down there, and we did that for like the last seven years of the of the shop. So it was a great, it was a really cool communal space, and it and it just kind of felt like Jabberjaw or something. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what it reminded me of. That the whole the whole vibe there was very just like whatever. Let's
0: put on a show. You know. Yeah like obviously bars and clubs survive but like there's something about these retail spaces that were cultural hubs that we're we're losing now because you know obviously people consume media so differently but yeah and also because space for places is so expensive now in in cities yeah we
1: got priced out i mean we had to leave we were on valencia street uh and we paid 1800 dollars when we moved in there in 1997 and I think by the time we got out of there, they wanted like $6,000 or something a month. Yeah. Um, they just would jack our rent every single time incrementally. And then we ended up in the lobby of the Alamo draft house down on mission street. Um, sort of just as some people could, you know, just kind of browse movies before they went in, in to their film. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, what a great thing and not only that like you know what else i was really proud of about the shop was that there was a lot of uh musicians touring musicians that that i gave jobs to mm-hmm. who i was like yeah you could you could work here and then go off and leave for two months and then you're more than welcome to come back so like we had like every everyone worked at my shop like every like like bianca from marisa rada worked there and like hannah lou from grass widow and Coldbeat worked there and Ed Rodriguez from Deerhoof and and Richard Baluya from Versus and like uh, Wyatt from the Eiler set. Like I can't like the list is is crazy. Um, Brian Gerges from uh, Lowercase and Trackstar like we just had like this huge community of either you were an artist or you were a musician or you were in school and you were like welcome to come work and then go fuck off and do whatever you got to do and then come back. So that was like another, uh, you know, that was definitely a source of pride that we, we we had that kind of community too. you know what I mean? Not just like the neighborhood community, but just like giving people a fucking job while they could do their their thing on the side. You know,
0: I've never even thought of it until you just brought that up. But like it, another huge obstacle facing people trying to make art now is the fact that you don't have cool gigs like that. Like there's not as many record stores, there's no video stores are right. very few like there's less and less as everything's getting more and more corporate there's less and less jobs that are going to be like no take off two or three weeks and go tour with your band and and do what you do like yeah we're a cool store yeah there was
1: four places in san francisco were that were those spots it was like uh last gasp
0: mm-hmm.
1: um bookstore right uh, yeah and a distro too yeah um uh Rainbow Grocery, which was like the crunchy granola, bring your own bags style grocery store. And and good vibrations. It was like that's where all the punks worked or my store, you know, like those were the spots you knew you, you were uh you were like in a safe space or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like it's you know, and like uh, I wanted to get into this with you later on, you know, talking about like major label stuff and things like that. How yeah quaint that whole thing seems in today's world where we are all just involved in me. Ma- like as soon as you're in music, you're on a major label because you're gonna be on a Spotify or you're gonna be on an Apple music or, or Amazon. Like, like, you know, but there was a moment there where there was like alternative economies. Like there was like, you know, you could work at the video store and then go to that health food store yep. and, and go and see bands at a local club and you're kind of keeping your money all in the same sort of community that way for sure yeah for sure
1: yeah it doesn't really exist anymore does it it's sad um even my own kids are like oh man you you had it so good that's so cool that you could live in you know it was 600 $500 or six hundred dollars for your apartment and you could work a minimum wage job and do your music or art like you, you can't really do that anymore not not in the big cities
0: no, it's so weird. And I guess that's where it's going to have to be is in the smaller towns. Like people are going to have to move to smaller towns. And and I guess there's not a need to necessarily be in the cities anymore in terms of access to distribution channels, because you right. can do that from anywhere now. Right. Because it's
1: all digital anyway. Yeah. I, I keep seeing people just piecing out to like, you know, fuck it. Moving to Ohio, moving to yeah. Alabama or whatever. Yeah. And good for them. I'm just. I'm, I'm kind of a snob because I'm, you know, I'm from Los Angeles and like, I like, I love the ocean, you know, I need to be near the the sea. And, um, so I, I'm, I don't have, I, I'm not sure I could make the jump I'll, as much as I, and I love like Tulsa and I love Memphis and stuff, but I'm not sure I could just like pick up stakes and, and go somewhere like that. That's that far away from, uh, a point break or or you know just or whatever you know the mm-hmm. pier.
0: Mm-hmm. no i i kind of like obviously we don't have an ocean in toronto but um i still feel like that same sort of pull to be in a city um and i'm like oh i want my kids to be to grow up in a city so they can yeah. experience that but then i'm like well it's not really the same sort of city that I grew up in now at all.
1: that's true that's true yeah both of my kids came up in San Francisco right in the heart of the city and
0: um I thought that that would be good for them um and I think it was actually yeah. I think it's changed now I think even like the last five six years like well especially last three years everything's going to be so radically different in terms of geography urban geography yeah man it's
1: it, it was sad to see all of the artists and musicians leave San Francisco. They got priced out, they got evicted, they got Ellis acted, or they just went to greener pastures where the rent was cheaper. First, it happened. First, everyone went up to Portland, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, or no, first it was Brooklyn in the early aughts. And then people were like, fuck it, we'll go to Portland. And then it became Los Angeles. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. When people go to LA to like get a more affordable living, like you know this ha- this happened obviously in the second uh, dot com boom here when the rents just quadrupled and you know space was no yeah, there's no space everything yeah everything was like a peak fucking premium thing, you know everyone left yeah. everyone left either they left on their own or they got pushed out. So that was a drag like there's very few people that are still here
0: it's funny too because like all these cities market themselves on these cultures that are there you know and these 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 this culture this arts these scenes but like especially now there's like so little investment in this stuff and it's like what what, what are these cities going to hang their hats on 10 years from now i know. was really lucky we got drake like we were we we lucked out with that drake thing because they have not put any effort into fostering yeah. an arts community right right yeah it's 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 too bad i mean
1: if there was an upside to this fucking lockdown and covid and all these businesses closing i thought maybe it would be that some people could sc- cobble some money together and grab a storefront and do something super cool there you know Mm-hmm. because it started looking it got pretty samey around here it looked like any upscale you know resort town with all <laughs> the same bullshit yeah you know those like those kind of couture shops with like four things on hangers in there and no one in, no one can afford to shop there i don't know who the fuck is buying this stuff anyway that i mean that was what i that was what i was writing about when i did the, the video store project um, is how much it all changed how that how that how our community necessarily suffered from this uh this gold rush this like the digital gold rush or whatever they call it now
0: Mm -hmm. i guess going back way back when um how did the relationship with shredder start
1: shredder um mel heard us on maximum rock and roll radio okay walter walter glazer played us on the radio and um mel liked it and he just said do Do you want to put yeah they played our demo and he's like oh you want to put that song out on a seven inch so he put it out with um us and crimp shrine and moral crux and a priori i think and it's
0: like the world in shreds right
1: yeah yeah so we did that and then he gave us and then we came up and played gilman and he heard us play a song called busy and he was like i want to put that one out too so he, he put that one out um and then just eventually we just you know like well we got we got 12 songs you want to want to make a record and he gave us money to make a record we did it down in la at um radio tokyo where all our all our uh heroes you know recorded right there in venice right right near where blake lived
0: it's a, it's a great label too like going back and looking through their catalog like those comps are fantastic but you know like uh, tim armstrong's first band or one of his early bands is on there and parasites of course too and and yourselves like it's a, uh, I guess in that period before you know everything kind of explodes like this was like uh i don't know like a, a real well curated selection of the bands that were kind of happening at that time especially those World and shred comps yeah well i mean mel you know mel's an obsessive
1: record collector and and um and just a fan you know mm-hmm. so he he just was like he, he just threw it down and it put his money where his his mouth was and just put start putting stuff out for people which was great what about
0: tupelo records like was that like were they they were um communion right was the parent company or tupelo or it's, is it like-, a, it's a, like tupelo and communion
1: is basically gary held
0: okay. and gary
1: held gary held owns revolver distribution mm so and they're right down the street from me so revolver is a dist- is a one-stop distro for us anyway um there are ex- i mean to say that there are exclusive distributor um so there's a warehouse down like four blocks from here where uh, gary and bob and a whole bunch of people work uh shipping records you know mm-hmm. shipping oc's records or whatever is selling like hotcakes um and we were introduced to those guys, to Gary through, uh, from Lance Hahn. So Lance Hahn uh, said, Oh, you got to meet this guy, Gary. And so we met him and he was like, you want to make a record? And we were like, absolutely. And, um, and we've been there ever since. They're still our, our exclusive distro. Um, I don't, you know, yeah, I think they're, yeah they're, they're all working down there now like i know the COVID kind of shut down the works for a, a minute um but they're still yeah they're still
0: at it they're still like loading up ups trucks with with vinyl i love that label because it's kind of like there's so many bands on it like bitch magnet of course um as well like there's so many bands that just don't fit into any scene That yeah are, that are love
1: there. that bitch we love bitch magnets umber that was the yeah. thing that made i mean we wanted to when we talked to gary he was like okay cool you'll be on tupelo right and we were like no we wanted to say communion on the record just like bitch magnet Sumber." that's what that's what we wanted and he was like okay he was like so we put them both on there it's tupelo and communion but it's all the same it's all just one guy it's just different logos (laughs) just different imprint yeah
0: well i guess it's like that too with uh beggars too where like Rough Trade, 4AD, Matador. Like they're all it's all beggars. Like it's just right. like different teams, right. I guess, but yeah, at the end of the day. you don't know, you don't learn about this
1: stuff until later. You're like, oh, right,
0: there's only one
1: label, really. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they own everything. And everything. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, it it. Bitch Magnet's a band that I think if they had a different name, I think they would be a lot more heralded now. I think people have a hard time that don't know the band getting over the name when you try and hip someone to them right yeah because it's yeah it's 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 not yeah it's not
1: the, <laughs> certainly not the most pc name that you could have come up with
0: no and i and the whole thing is it's meant to be this ironic yeah. you know like turn of it but at the same time it's like yeah you gotta check out this band bitch magnet yeah. people are like oh, i don't know
1: right cause it sounds like a bunch of yeah it sounds like a, a bunch of frat guys that are yeah if they want to be like you know these sort of like self-congratulatory uh jocks um but yeah that, that record's amazing i would i would uh yeah i, I i've listened to that recently so it still sounds great huh? I was
0: gonna say, you, you you wind up playing with sue young later on right
1: um i mean sales? not with it oh like in a band band no yeah. no i um, oh okay i thought you guys yeah. were
0: in the band at the same time no
1: uh I played in I played with him like I think I, when I was when I was touring with Jay church we did something with with sue young maybe with Seam or um one of his other projects or whatever
0: okay because uh, he was in with sale lane two right but like very early on or something oh
1: he might have been. Okay. I that, I that that would that wouldn't totally surprise me. But no um no Waisol Lane is prime it's right. is, is primarily Richard from Versus. It's his project. Yeah. Um so I think that he might have he might have monkeyed around with some other people in there. Um the record that I made with him in San Francisco here was just me and him and, and Michael Delgado, but um you know, he's got two other brothers that also play music, so and Richard knows everybody. Richard knows everybody. Like, you know, he knows like the mission of Burma guys and like, they have his guitar and stuff. Like he's just one of those dudes. Uh, we met Richard when we first moved to New York. Oh yeah. R- yeah. Richard, Richard played with Chris, uh, in a band called butcher Clyde before, um, be- you know, a couple of years before we met those guys, before we met
0: Chris, um, so yeah god I've known Richard forever um I've talked to you forever and I could punish you for years Adam at some point would you come back for a part two yeah yeah I mean there, do we get some stuff here is there some good stuff oh, this is amazing <laughs> man yeah unbelievable uh before I let you go can I ask you briefly about yeah. joining J Church because how many how many like tours did you do you went to Australia and i did
1: uh no i did a national with with lance and then we or no maybe two i did one in like 1993 we did one and then i think or maybe it was 94 and then we did another one uh in the in the early 2000s and i'm on a bunch of the records um but lance was so prolific that like he would just call me up and go do you want to come and record some stuff at the at the rehearsal space i go yeah and then it'd come out like on a record a couple of months later it was the guy was turning him out like crazy um so i'm i am um super proud to have played on some really good J church songs um i'm on the sound of mariachi bands i love that um yeah and a bunch of other stuff that i'm still kind of finding out because he you know he put so many things out like i'll be i'll find like a like a 10 inch in my stack. And I'll be like, is that me playing the drums? I think that's me. (laughs) Um, And a bunch of the seven inches and stuff too. But yeah, Lance was, we met Lance. Lance was kind of like the ambassador to San Francisco for us because we were in LA and he's like, you guys got to move up here. I got to introduce you to these guys at revolver. Um, You know, Lance lived with Chris um, in the apartment across from me and Blake when we were living on Sycamore Street in 1991, like Lance was just around, and um, and it's funny, it's funny. He still it, it still feels like he's around. Like whenever I talk to someone who knows Lance or that um, enjoys Jay Church, um, everyone has that that same sort of feeling. Like he's not here, but he's kind of still here in a way.
0: He's he comes up a lot in the show and seems like someone that had like an unbelievable footprint that they left in people's lives. He was, he was fucking
1: hilarious. He was so funny. He had, he was, he had such a great laugh and we had so many great times. Um, like I, I got Lance stories. I got like a lot of good Lance stories. Um, and I'm talking to Bucky Sinister is putting together an oral history of, uh, Lance's, uh, projects. It's going to be about Cringer and Jay church and just Lance and his, the book he was writing when he passed away. So way too early. Um, So Bucky Sinister is, has, um, has been collecting stories from people. I haven't, I haven't spoken to him yet. I started to write it out, but there was just too much. I was like, this isn't going to come out right. Like we should probably just record it and then you could just put it down just the way I tell it. Cause um, yeah, I I got a lot to say about Lance, but yeah, what a, what a, what an amazing uh,
0: person, like
1: a great guy. Yeah, and Lance worked at the video store too.
0: Damn, everyone, everyone
1: through yeah. the store. Yeah, everyone fucking <laughs> at the shop. You know why? Because we we would buy people dinner, and as long as they just kept on working, we we'd be like, "We'll buy your dinner," but you still got to ring people up.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a good deal. You know. Yeah, it didn't
1: hurt. It didn't hurt that there was like a bar downstairs, and and you know,
0: you get you get your you get your. uh your crush demers, remember your crush demers, with well, the people that would come in and have crushes on the staff you mean or, or or vice versa yeah but i i definitely by the time i was working in the video store uh i was i was like already with my wife but i remember the some of the like some of the people i would meet there have scarred me for life like i mean i see some people like later in life and i'm like oh great but like knowing what weird sketchy anime they're renting has been something that i can now see someone i know exactly which terrifying tentacle film they're into because it just what was it what was the what was the gnarliest video that you rented oh my god uh uh cat experiment Do you remember when that came out no (laughs) Holy God.
1: See, there were some things that we wouldn't we we there was some things that we didn't cross the line on. We didn't have like it it was like we didn't have a huge like pornography section. Like we had like the 70s kind of kitsch, kind of the ones like the Mitchell brothers (laughs) stuff and like whatever. Like if something came out that was like a a joke on something that was popular, like the sopornos or something. You know
0: (laughs) what I mean? That was a popular rental. I remember that one very very much flying off the shelves. Right
1: yeah pam and tommy like was gets stolen constantly but we didn't have like it never got we didn't have like a lot of the really gnarly we didn't have like faces of death or any of those kind of things you know what i mean
0: but then there was like a period like you you must remember that in the mid like the early mid 2000s where horror movies just got so insane like there was that a serbian movie and there was the um uh what was it called the human guinea pig yeah and, and they're all fake obviously like they're all like right. movies but right. like the level of violence was just so like I don't even want to hear someone pretend about this shit
1: well then didn't that in that begat like what became known as like torture porn yeah uh in the horror genre right like the wet you know. We, they picked it right up in the in the states and we're like okay let's let's run with this
0: yeah and it's really it's affected it's even now like TV like my wife will watch uh, I, I burnt myself out on horror movies working in video stores but my wife will watch something on tv and i'm like oh my god like this is so extreme like american horror story it, it looks like a, a japanese film that we'd be renting at the right end, it was like it's like an
1: asian Asian tartan extreme remember that that imprint
0: yes yes very extreme That that was gnarly
1: it actually but not now actually you probably look back at that and go like oh that's pretty mild because it just got more and more ramped up
0: I think the cinema transgression stuff still has an impact like that because it's it feels so much more real you know because it doesn't have right the the sheen to it that a lot of this stuff has which i think makes that other stuff kind of gross is that sheen to it that's the thing that really because it feels like you're watching you know a film that should know better right
1: i just looked it up tartan asia extreme that's what it is i had it backwards yeah we had, but um... yeah, that that that's that thing with uh yeah, transgression, that stuff, yeah, because it's shot on film and it looks like there's no no, they're not playing around, right? It looks like you're watching something that's really happening. Which was like kind of the way I felt when I first saw um Night of the Living Dead when I was seven years old. Like when that the very first time I watched that on on broadcast television, it was like I was seven and i remember thinking like this is this might be happening like this yeah. might be really yeah. Happening.
0: yeah no there's and there's that some people have come on here and talked about that same effect when you listen to punk for the first time like like um barry from joyce manor talked about listening to operation ivy and feeling like he was seeing something he wasn't supposed to be or hearing something he wasn't supposed to be hearing like it was right just so much more raw and real than anything else he had heard up until that point
1: right yeah yeah totally Yeah, it's like when yeah the first time you hear straight out of Compton or something, you're just like, "Holy shit!" Like finally, someone is fucking bringing it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Uh, Adam, you have brought it, and I don't want to keep you from dinner any longer. But anytime you're ready to come back on here, because we didn't touch on half the stuff I wanted to touch on. So please know the door is always open.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll come back whenever you'll have me. Come on up here, kid. Come on. Should we sign off?
0: Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Adam will be back for part two at some point in the near future. Because there's a lot more to get to. And uh, well, actually, maybe we'll have Adam and his sister back. You know, spoiler on on next week's end. Because coming up later on this week on the show, or maybe maybe just I should say in a few short days on the show, Kembra Fowler. Is going to be on the podcast. That's right. Kembra is one of the one of my favorite artists. I think one of the most important artists to kind of come out of I don't know this music or or be inspired by this music and someone who continues to inspire people on many different levels. This is a very interesting conversation with uh, someone I'm a huge fan of as well. So yeah, what a great week! What a great week! Awesome sibling week here on Turned Out a Punk with uh, two of the coolest siblings, and we get into more about their family in the next episode as well, and my gosh, it's a good one. All right, that is that. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter, the lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and just people that believe different things and all this sorts of stuff. Like We we just basically need to just knock all this fascist shit out because that is truly... Uh, it's it's not a political thing. This is, these are basically just human rights that people deserve to be able to have. You know, people deserve to be free. People deserve to be able to uh, live without fear of violence and hate and, and all sorts of things. So if there's organizations around you that are doing great work and you want to support them, just try and support them. See how you can get involved. See, see if there's something you can do. Um, because, you know, it feels better to help do positive things. Speaking of feeling better, maybe try and make your own culture. Start a band. Start a fanzine. This thing is, uh, you know, something that you're supposed to be participating in. And, you know, it doesn't have to be something as grandiose. Just draw some pictures. Try and be creative. It'll help your mental health, you know. Speaking of helping your mental health, try and meditate. I tried it. You know, I didn't believe in it. I tried it. And it really does help calm you down and, and put you in a good headspace. So, you know, like get get uh. Get 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 it, get trying it. Who knows? Maybe it won't work for you. Maybe it will. Who knows? You know. Speaking of things that I do know, though, I know you're not going to need those organs by the time you die. So sign your organ donor's card, because because really you're just giving someone else a chance when you don't need it anymore. You know, you're just like ah, you know what? I don't take this shit. It's just going to rot away in me. You know. Oh, that is that on that morbid note. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, I'll see you later on. This camera episode's amazing. I'm really stoked for you to hear it. And that is that. All right. Goodbye.